1: I'm your host, Stella, and this is Batgirl the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 159 for July MMXVIII. with the Oracle is brought to you by... This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the thebatmanuniverse.net including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at the BatmanUniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show.
2: Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts.
0: Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby?
2: Would you? truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were bus system. <laughs> now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... A podcast about cheers, yeah. <laughs> that kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. <laughs> Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network.
1: Well, welcome back, or at least welcome back to me. If you recall, I didn't talk about it too much, but I went off to Kenya for about sixteen days, and I guess you could subtract two of those or something because of the flight over, which was uh, rather long and Of course, there were many things that went on during that flight as well as security, which is uh, security is always very interesting at different airports, especially when you 're in a foreign nation well, Kenya. I was. We started off in Nairobi, and then we spent the majority of the time in Nairi, Kenya, and then we spent the last bit at uh, Masai Mara, which is a conservancy. So the the purpose of going over to Kenya, if I hadn't talked about that, was to spend a good amount of time at a children's home that my church is partnered with over there, called Tumaini, and Tumaini also has uh, a sister home called Haruma. And we didn't stay there because there aren't any facilities for us to stay over there. But we did. Uh, I visited that place twice, whereas everyone only visited it once. And so really, we. If there was a project, we were going to pick up a project at either of the homes. We had things to give the kids, gifts, supplies, you know, balls. That's absolutely what they want the most. And really just to fellowship and spend time with the kids there. And I do want to stress the fact that we're not just Mazinga, uh putting ourselves in there and trying to make the situation better, right? We're Mizunga that are working with... Actual native Kenyans who are working there and who stay there the uh, forever right for the entire time and then work with those kids so it's it's very much a partnership not trying to to be the white person putting ourselves in there that's what mazunga means so in in Kiswahili so I went over there because I for a couple of different reasons I want to be disturbed I think and, and unsettled and uncomfortable because i would i feel like right now i'm i'm in a pretty comfortable state you know i look around me and i do see things that fill me with sadness and and i see them as travesties but i also wanted to go to another place and that that really is is far removed from what we understand over here and just witness that and also spend time with kids I teach middle school and high school, and I can relate to them pretty well, college students, but younger children, I'm not too much a fan of. And so I knew that was going to be a struggle, but I wanted to try to to battle with that. So those were some of the reasons that I went over there. And another reason was, like I said, I want to be uncomfortable. I think, you know, being a female, obviously... I'm going to have struggles probably throughout my entire life, but I have a certain amount of privilege because of my skin color. And I wanted to go to a place where it was completely reversed and maybe get a sense of or, or, you know, at least feel a fraction of what, you know, black people in America felt like, well, I guess the entire time that they've uh, been in America, unfortunately, and really only a fraction, but you... (laughs) There aren't many Mazunga over there, and when they pop up, man, those kids are staring. And the kids at the children's home, of course, get used to the first couple days they're staring at you trying to figure out. But if you travel anywhere, they will stop and stare, and adults as well. And it was pretty funny riding on the back of a man's motorbike. Went on about a thirty-kilometer ride around the Erie, and you know I was just hanging on back there, and then seeing people when I pass them, you like stop and and turn and everything, and so feeling uncomfortable with that. But it it I think it was good. I think it it did me some good just to at least. You know, like uh, Atticus Finch said, not to just walk in somebody's shoes, but to walk in their skin, you know, to understand what they may have felt like. So I think to a certain extent, I may have gotten that, but obviously during or under better circumstances than black Americans face throughout history. So I feel like. It was a successful trip. It's actually really hard to talk about because I don't have a lot of time on here. I would take up three hours probably talking to you about it all. But I really enjoyed the kids. I think I was able to get along with any of the age groups. I think the older young men may have been the most difficult to get into, but even them I was able to to talk to a little bit, especially because World Cup was on, so I was able to talk to them about soccer or football since I played football. And at one point I milked a cow with a couple of them, so I talked with them there. So there are some opportunities that you just have to, when those opportunities are open for you, you just have to snatch them up. So, you know, the young kids, I played all sorts of games with, went crazy on them. So I think, you know, two assets I brought with me over there was the fact that I do teach middle school and I'm really wacky and crazy, as some of my good friends will tell you. And I was able to do that. And, I mean, I was chasing kids around, which they loved, shouting things at them. At one point, they wrapped themselves up in a parachute that we had brought, and I was, like, attacking them and saying, I'm going to bake you into a chapati, and, you know, they would point at me and yell that I'm a crazy mazunga and I would point back and say, no, you're a crazy mazunga and so th- there was a lot of fun to be had there. And then the other asset is that I look 16, even though I'm not, and this was able to help me bond and, and have good conversations with some of the young women that were in Forms 1 through 4, which is our ninth through 12th grade, basically. And Sunday, I think especially, just hanging out with them after church for a couple hours, just talking in a circle was amazing. And then I helped a couple of them do chores. And I think, you know, I don't know what they thought, but it was fun for me to do the work that they do every day. And, you know, I so much more appreciated that. And who knows if they appreciated that I was sweeping for them or attempting to clean the sidewalk area that they had, but I, I, I liked it. So, you know, building relationships was the, the purpose of it. And I think there I was successful. I think the the difficulty with this trip is that you only spend a week at that children's home and then you go back and then you have that safari. And as much as I love animals, and I would almost pick animals over people, quite honestly, I think it'd be better to forgo the safari and actually be with the kids another week because you get to that friday saturday sunday and you've really started to connect more deeply with the kids and then you leave and so i think it'd be better to connect and then have that next week to explore more and hopefully you've gotten close to a couple and and are able to strengthen those relationships so that's my only disappointment with that. But, you know, there were other struggles, I think, throughout uh, sort of questions that I had, things that I want to think through and discuss with my spiritual mentor, Adina. The, the role of technology, I, you know, a lot of the, the team, I would say half of the team, really desirous of being on phones and things, you know, check in with family and things like that. And And I can see, you know, one woman, her Daughter was. I think both daughters were overseas at this point. Another one was trying to set up a celebration for her for her son who had passed away a year earlier. But man, I I, I told people that. You know, I wouldn't be really able to communicate with them. I only sent one email to my parents that said, you know, I'm here, I landed, I'm safe. And that was really all I expected to send. And yes, if you had read the blog, which you can go on meadows2kenya.blogspot.com, I was the one updating that so the technology is there. But just the role of technology and I think oh, just being tied to that. and And, you know, the only thing, only comfort that I really brought with me was... My book, and I did end up listening to music to help me fall asleep. Because uh, three, half of the one, two, three, yeah, half of the, the team also were snorers. But just my book was the only thing that I thought. If I need personal time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use this. So I, I questioned that. There's another thing where people were getting upset because we didn't have water, the toilet wasn't flushing. We only had f- four rooms. There were six of us, and I thought, you know, we've got some place to stay. I can go pretty long without a shower. I mean, you know, you you really only have to clean pretty important parts and then you can go on your way. It's really not a big deal. And I was thinking to myself, you know, Paul, Paul the Apostle had been through so much and and what are we complaining about? So that was a little frustrating as well and sort of working through that as well and, and also going to a supermarket. And I can imagine going to a supermarket for the balls and things that we decided not to get in the U.S. and went to this place to get it for the kids but then we were getting things like diet coke and and some things to eat cookies and things like that and again i thought oh level of comfort are we really here for that so there those are some things that i struggled with and then, of course, the safari was just beautiful. And I think if you ever want to experience God's glory, uh, that would be the place to go. And if you were ever to question the presence of God, I mean, just listen to a Bushmaster talk about the termite mound and what's going on inside and all the termites or the acacia tree and the ants that are with the acacia tree. It's it's just astounding. But, yeah, I uh, I went on a, about a two-hour hike with the Bushmaster found out I was the only one not nervous at all I just thought yeah this is I mean I, I like the outdoors I'm ready to hike but there uh, the other three people were kind of nervous about it. even the man was nervous I thought wow that's what's happening right now <laughs> so eh, I don't know the entire trip I thought if I I'm just flying flying by the how I say it, is flying by the hem of God's robe basically you know whatever experience God wants to give me I'm going to take it in. And I was very open to very much anything. Got to see cheetahs, wildebeest, zebras, zebras. giraffes, ostriches, topi, thompson gazelles, cheetah cubs, lions, uh, all sorts of awesome, awesome creatures. At one point, we were almost attacked, hippopotamus, crocodile. At one point, we were almost, to elephants. At one point, we were almost attacked by a lion. We had found uh, two lionesses, about six cubs. One lioness was nursing the cubs. Another lioness goes into a bush. A lion follows her into the bush. There are some noises. Not really love making noises, but sort of noises of, I'm annoyed that you're in the bush right now with me. And then she walks out, he follows her, she weighs down, he weighs down next to her, kind of doing this weird dance that clearly he wants to, to be with her. And so this has gone on for a while, sun goes down, we decide to leave, and they're kind of sitting in our pathway, and as we pass, he is not, ups- he's not happy that we are passing in the midst of his attempts of lovemaking, and he's, he's roaring, he's roaring good, and, and I am a yard away from him i kid you not i was the closest so if anything were to happen i would have been the one to take the brunt of the attack but he's he's roaring and and Kind of getting close to the jeep, and people were nervous. One person says, "I think because I took a video of it, but really can only hear the audio." One person says, "It's a little too close for comfort, I think." And again, sort of the nervousness. I was a little nervous. I thought I shouldn't have made that joke at the end of a uh, school year, where I said, "I hope I don't get eaten by a lion," because uh that could have happened. But just those interactions, I think, are a lot of fun. Going on a night ride, I got to hold the lamp to shine it to see you know the eyes and reflections and see other uh creatures bush babies we got to see their eyes are huge so that we went over to to find them and yeah i think it was it was just a great adventure again you know i could go on for about three hours but i don't want to take up too much much time on it but it was just a great experience and i would absolutely live there and it's not in a i'd live there it was so exotic and gorgeous and full of splendor situation it was i would live there and there's a lot of sadness there and um i mean 57 percent unemployed over there but i would live there to uh be with those kids i think you know and make a difference somehow with them and and be just work there work with the kenyans there that's so I, i don't know what this trip, how it's going to impact me. It's already impacted me, but I don't know what this means for my future. But I do know that because of this trip, I decided not to go to San Diego Comic-Con, so you cannot or you should not expect a wrap-up episode with those crazy zanny things that I do all the time that get close to six hours, but never over. I just want to carve out some space to think about this experience. And when I go to Comic-Con, I'm just so engaged and focused on that. And, and the weeks leading up to it, I'm so engaged and focused on that, that it's just not, I, I feel like I would have forgotten Kenya to a certain extent and not given the time that it's due. So I'm, you know, I'm a little bummed because I'm, I think for the most part I'm bummed because I'm not going to be able to hang out with Josh and Don. I think because I've got no you know, favorite writers or anything that are up there that I'm dying to interview, I'm okay. I'm sure I'll be slightly envious when I hear the stories and and hear their wrap-up. But other than that, you know, uh, just taking a break and I think it'll be okay. (laughs) So there you go. If you have any questions or you have uh, any thoughts you want to send my way or, again, questions that you want to ask me about Kenya, please shoot them my way and I'll be sure to to touch upon it but thank you to everyone who supported me going out there some of you monetarily supported me some of you prayed for me i I just really appreciate that and i uh prayed for you guys while i was over there um so god's blessing upon you well now to get into some actual comic stuff there's going to be a new backer costume and a new status quo and so this happened when did this happen june 15th so a couple days after i left for kenya probably the first day that i was in nairobi uh the dc comics dc comics debuted uh, her new costume which could we say new costume and her new direction Of course, headed by Margaret Scott. And so this, I'm going to read an interview that was posted on Polygon.com. And then I'll comment uh, either as we go or just at the end of it. So just to give you a sense of this. So Barbara Gordon's world is about to be flipped upside down as a new era dawns for Burnside's favorite daughter. Complete with a brand new look and an all new creative team made up of writer Margaret Scott and artist Paul Pelletier and Elena Casagrande. Batgirl is leaving her neighborhood and heading back to Gotham City proper to face down a new and deeply personal threat. Starting with Batgirl 26 on August 22nd. With a design concept by Sean Gordon Murphy, Babs's new look is a pretty far cry from the pastel purple moto jacket she's been wearing since the Batgirl or Burnside soft reboot back in 2015. This is supposed to be a version of the costume that she was working on when she still lived with her dad, Scott explained in reference to her new, more classic look. That's why it looks so much like her original Batgirl year one outfit, like she's with her dad. She can't get out back to Burnside. And this is like the emergency. So the version that she is working on back in the day that she had stashed here, just in case, it helps us with the story a little bit, too, because it's a little less bright. We wanted her to be more stealthy, and we want her to be able to integrate more tech with the belt. And by the sound of things, that emphasis on stealth, that was the quote, end quote, and by the sound of things, that emphasis on stealth is going to come in handy. Barbara is headed to home to face off against a villain named Grotesque, who harkens back to Backrow's original New 52-era run. Created by Gail Simone and Artie and Sioff, Grotesque was originally the sort of adrenaline junkie who liked to steal the finer things in life, according to Scott, but he got sent away to Blackgate. Now he's back, and we learn that in his time in prison, he has really changed changed might be a bit of an understatement here Grote- grotesque new M.O. is no longer just trying to steal fine art he wants to make it brutally Backrow uncovers a string of grisly art pieces constructed out of human body parts at the scenes of various crimes things like Perseus with the head of Medusa but maybe it's got a real person's head or still life but made up of human hands Scott clarified with a grin he's still stealing things of course but it's different now he's escalating and Backrow has to stop him But it's not going to be easy. On top of grotesque, grisly reappearance, Babs suffers what Scott calls a really traumatic injury at the start of the arc. The implant that allows her to walk is shorting out, she explained, and that's not all. But when that happens, Babs just like, oh, okay, my legs aren't working. I can deal with that. It's fine. Because she was Oracle for a long time, you know. She knows how to operate without the chip. Scott later said that she studied and spoke with wheelchair users about forms of self-defense and martial arts to get an idea of exactly how effective Barbara could be without the use of her legs. That's not what worries Backroll at all. The real fear is much more insidious. We decided that this implant is in her spine. It's got to hook into her brain somehow, so that's a risk. She's a girl who can survive anything as long as she has her brain, but what happens if her brain is suddenly becoming an unreliable place? Scott continued, my mom had a brain tumor, so I pulled a lot of what Babs is going through here from her her it was a lot of awkward conversations like hey so you know how it felt when you were brain damaged scott laughed as she related the anecdote but then leaned forward straight-faced because that's scary you know my mom was a professional grammarian for years and suddenly it was a struggle she had to think about things like what if the language centers in my brain stop working how will i feed myself how will i feed my family so that's what babs is going through she's worried that her eidetic memory might not be perfect and her investigative skills might be failing then on a lighter note scott grinned that's kind of what being a writer is i guess being mean to fictional people i subscribe to the ryan johnson school of thought where i like to find stories by doing the worst possible thing to a character and going from there. But Babs's new status quo isn't all darkness and struggle. The Burnside era isn't being tossed out the window and Babs won't be returned to her position as Oracle full time. That's kind of a spoiler I guess. But I want to get ahead of that. We don't want to tease people with that. We're absolutely not looking to go grim dark, Scott continued. I love hopeful Babs, but I think to me, leaving that hope untested is worth less than putting that hope through the fire. Beckrow learned some amazing lessons in Burnside, and now we want to continue that arc in a natural progression like a real person would. This mission is supported by the art team of Pelletier and Casagrande, who, Scott explained, in conjunction with DC editorial, are really focused on keeping Babs true to character. It was important to us that the art communicates her as a hero rather than a pin up or a victim. That doesn't mean there won't be plenty of action. Scott was quick to clarify that Bats will take some real hits and some brutal fights, but we don't want her to feel delicate or like she can't bounce back. We gave the Gordon family a mantra for this story, and it's Gordon's never give up. And this story, Scott emphasized, is all about Barbara never giving up. Okay, so a couple things here some causes for concern unfortunately let's start with the outfit though so i do like the fact that we're going back to back row year one you know how much that i love back row year one and i think that it looks amazing from the neck down my main issue is in fact the cowl and the fact that her hair is flowing free and then she's sort of got these horns that are popping up through her hair i think uh Number one, it just looks really weird. And number two, I think there's just major safety issue, not only with villains being able to grab your hair, but also with it getting in your eyes. I mean, it's coming down over her left eye if you're looking at this uh, Murphy redesign here. And I just think about my own hair. If I have my moonroof up or my sunroof back and, and my window's open, like it's flying over the place and I just leave it go. But there are some times where I'm driving and, you know... The, the view might be obscured for a moment. So I just don't think it's good. Also, I mean, with how... I, I saw one image that it's just... It's, it's got to be clear to practically everyone... That, uh, that's Barbara Gordon. So if she ever encounters her father wearing this stuff, boy, he better say something. So there's the outfit. I'm okay with it, except for basically that, uh, maybe 10 or 20% there. The fact that she's facing off against grotesque is, you know, I, I didn't really, I don't really like any of the Gail Simone created villains in that particular run. So to bring him back is unfortunate. And the fact that we are, she says we're not going grimdark, Scott says we're not going grimdark, but the fact that we're talking about, you know, Perseus with real people and stuff, it's it's seemingly pretty bad here. And then uh, just sort of how c'est la vie and blasé she is, that, you know, she, she can't really walk and it's going to be fine, but she's going to make it in the end. You know, I just wonder about this importance here of, you know, representation and it's not easy for people to to go through that. And we can assume that she's going to, since she told us she's not going to be Oracle full-time, that she's going to bounce back and be okay. And the fact that, again, we're doing stuff with her brain, this is going to be, what, the third or the fourth time that something's messed up with her brain. So a story point that's happened again. And the thing that worries me is, uh, is this quote here, Worse, the, doing the worst possible thing to a character and going from there? But no, we don't want to be grim dark. So, you know, concerned with what this new arc is going to be like. Is she going to stay in Gotham City? Because, you know, I feel like we reached a good point with her. You know, Burnside, she's not completely cut off from the Batman family, but she can be her own character and her own sort of system and and have her own people surround her. But going back to Gotham, I think there's that shadow of Batman over there. And so I wonder what exactly that is going to be like. So more concerns than excitement and joy. And hopefully Josh and Don will be able to interview Margaret Scott and and figure out what's going to happen. But uh, there you go. I'm going to miss... The pastel, but again, I I do like the gray and the blue is one of my favorite costumes for her original costume, plus back earlier one, so I'm okay with all that. I'm just not okay with the dark storylines that comes with it. Okay, well, that's it for, I guess, news and introduction. Now let's get into some vintage reviews. There were a couple Nightwing issues I just want to go quickly through. Nightwing 32... little shipper moment where dick is actually in a cop class i guess you could call it that starting off as a rookie and he's actually sketching the oracle mask in his notebook and i mean people only do that if they have a crush on somebody else and then in nightwing 34 he calls babs after a night fighting double dare and he has a cold and he asks babs to come to the haven to nurse him back to health So sort of a a playful banter between the two, but unfortunately the transmission is cut off and Batman tells Nightwing to come to Gotham because, of course, No Man's Land is heading quickly down the pike for Nightwing, as well as for (laughs) Batgirl the Oracle. So just those two little moments where Oracle appears, or at least is mentioned. But here we are. We're doing our second arc of the original Birds of Prey. And we're going to do Birds of Prey 4, 5, and 6. So Birds of Prey number 4 is titled The Raven Strike. The cover date was April 1999. Writer Chuck Dixon, Penciler Greg Land, Inker Drew Garassi, And colors Gloria Vasquez. In the sovereign nation of Caraco, the Ravens, Pisolera, Vicious, and Cheshire, take down a number of Cobra's henchmen en route to his local stronghold. As they get nearer, it becomes clear they are expected when explosions go off and they are met by a squad of Cobra soldiers and a war spider. Cheshire quickly destroys the war spider, bringing Cobra Prime to the forefront, where he congratulates the ladies on their work, and Cheshire tells the rest of the ladies that he is both their target and contractor. He brings the ladies into his base, where he informs them that he is an assignment for them retrieve something near Lake Makachitahu in Minnesota that if you were to send COBRA units to get, they would be conspicuous, but the lady should blend in. Black Canary happens to be vacationing in the same area. On her drive up, she discusses Oracle's relationship with the Batman family, with Black Canary calling her a Batgirl. During the discussion, Oracle makes a point to say her relationship with Nightwing is strictly professional, so Black Canary <laughs> asks to be set up with him. When she asks, Oracle ends the conversation and distractedly drops a book. The unknown person watching her, Beeb, on cameras makes mention that they feel like a voyeur, and she immediately gets an email from Beeb, whom she notes always seems to catch her at her worst, and they have a short chat. At the lake, Black Canary rents a cabin, and the Quirk asks her if there's a convention in town because there's already a few pretty girls checked in. So this not conspicuous thing is working out really well there, Cobra Prime. The Quirk, Gary, shows her to her cabin, and they pass the Ravens, who are talking about the amount of money and manpower Cobra has spent to retrieve what they have been sent for. When she asks what there is to do for fun... Gary mentions monster watching for the local lake monster, a new legend since she was last in the area, spotted by some tourists. After Gary leaves, Black Canary takes off her transmitter necklace and earrings. In the Pentagon, Major Van Luton and Lieutenant Providence have gotten something on the trail of their mystery hacker. Despite the hacker being described as a Jedi Master, the CGI Joes (laughs) believe they're inside 24 hours of having his position. That night, the Ravens go diving in the lake where they locate an object with a CCCP stamp on it, which is exactly what they're looking for. Black Canary is standing on a dock admiring the lake when a large shadow appears underneath her. The dock shakes and begins to tear apart, and the head of the Makachitahu monster rises above her. Then we go to Birds of Prey number five, Monster, May 1999. Writer, Chuck Dixon. Penciler, Greg Land. Inker, Drew, Jirasi. And chorus, Gloria Vasquez. Black Canary finds herself running from the lake Makachitahu monster, which is destroying the pier below her. She dives underwater to get away from it, with it only turning away when the lodge clerk Gary and his uncle Ole... (laughs) Ole Ole, it looks like Olé. arrive and fire their rifles at it. The Black Canary thanks them for saving her, then tells Gary she'll want to speak to him about the other women around, who have rented a boat and gone on the lake after she places a phone call. She makes a 4 a.m. call to Oracle and tells her she's found the Loch Ness Monster in Minnesota. At another part of the lake, the Ravens, Cheshire, Pistolera, and Vicious, surface after having located the Soviet satellite Cobra, sent them to locate, and find that their boat is missing and the lodge has been replaced by a volcano in the pentagon major van luton cgi joes have tracked their phantom hacker through a variety of systems to the gotham Bluehaven area van luton orders his second lieutenant providence to get ready as they're on their way to take down the hacker using funds juggled from a made-up study which the made-up study was ridiculous it's like about people how the arctic affects couples and non-couple researchers it was really bizarre and then I think Providence says, When did when did the research turn out? And he goes, They didn't do it. That's where why we took the money. It's very weird. While Black Canary and Oracle discuss possibly looking into the monster, two men burst into Black Canary's cabin, yelling her codename and firing guns. They attempt to confirm their kill, noting that Prime doesn't like half measure, but she outmaneuvers and subdues them both. Reconnecting with Oracle, she confirms that the men are working for Cobra, and both ladies figure that they have to be in some way connected to the creature in the lake. Elsewhere, the confused ravens discuss their situation, with Cheshire positing that the radiation she picked up underwater was from neutrinos until vicious distracts her by pointing out a herd of mastodons oracle unknowingly being watched warns black canary that the lake she's chosen seems to have a recent history of cobra activity and they must think she's there to expose them she decides she may as well bust them while she's there and ask gary who came to check up on her when he heard the gunshots if she can rent scuba equipment and a boat confirming to him that yes she is some kind of superhero. Major Van Lutten and Lieutenant Providence are in a helicopter over Highway 61, awaiting confirmation on their target's location. Providence tries again to talk Van Lutten out of the hunt, but he refuses to back down, saying that because of the hacker's actions over the last few months, his department will be in serious trouble if it's ever audited. Cheshire tells the other Ravens that neutrinos have unique qualities and that they've somehow gone back in time. Gary brings Black Canary an inflatable boat, asking if she's sure she wants to go out. He tells her again about the three pretty girls that went out on a rental boat, and as she heads out, she describes the monster to Oracle, who looks it up on her computer. Black Canary finds a raven's boat and, diving underwater, finds a Soviet satellite they were sent to look for connected to a winch. Oracle finds nothing about the Soviets losing a satellite over the Midwest, and together they wonder why three pretty ladies would be interested in it. In the past, Cheshire explains to Vicious and Pistolera that neutrinos are the most common thing in existence and theorized to hold the universe together, like the Force. She further explains that they may shape time and space, making Pistolera wonder if the high concentration of them around the satellite may have pushed them into a time warp. In Gotham, Oracle hears a helicopter somewhere above her apartment. In the lake, Black Canary appears to be in trouble underwater. And then finally, Birds of Prey number six, Times Rainbow, June 1999. Again, writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Greg Land, inker Drew Jarosi, and colorist Gloria Vasquez. The unknown person spying on Oracle, Batman with assistance from Alfred Pennyworth, decide among themselves that the time has come to end their surveillance. Batman tells Alfred that he only wanted to make sure Barbara was stable in her role as Oracle, and since she is, he can pull the plug. As soon as he does, Oracle's voice is heard in the Batcave chastising Big Brother, thank you, 1984, Batman for setting up the cameras, which she knew about the entire time. Finished yelling at the Batman, she turns back to her computer to talk to Black Canary diving at Lake Makachitahu, Minnesota. <laughs> And watching a cobra submarine make its way to the Soviet satellite she just recently discovered. Stuck in the past, the ravens Cheshire, Pistilware, and Vicious begin to bigger among themselves. Cheshire decides to dive back to where the satellite was in the hope that it has a time exempt space around it and they can somehow be sent back to their real time where Cheshire intends to make Cobra Prime pay. In his submarine, Cobra Prime explains as a satellite they're looking for a Solaris 2, shot into space by the Soviets two decades ago and forgotten about, but controlled by Cobra, who brought it home when they learned it had trapped a large number of neutrinos. A botched re-entry placed it in Minnesota, but Cobra Prime intends to take it to take control of the world from the distant past. Black Canary aims a video transmitter at the Cobra soldiers as they work towards floating the satellite and begins looking up the craft online when a sudden harpoon pierces a diver. The Ravens, successfully transferred it back to the present, engage Cobra while Black Canary hides, and Oracle looks up their insignia and puts Black Canary on hold to tend to a sound at her window. Major Van Luton leads his team crashing through a window to find the their phantom hacker, finding Roland Desmond, who proceeds to decimate the soldiers. Taking one of their headsets, he relays a message to the commanders that since they have seemed to have no warrants, and he doesn't know why they would wish to break in on him, he will let it go as a mistake if they do. In Gotham, Oracle finds and releases a bird before returning it to the computer. Haha, see what you did there, Chuck Dixon. Black Canary has begun fighting the other ladies, while Oracle relays Cheshire's name and bad history. After the Ravens take off, Oracle tells her to stay with the satellite, and Black Canary notes seeing the monster as the cavalry. The monster rushes the submarine, tearing a hole in the side. Cobra Prime flees in an escape pod while Black Canary cheers the monster. On the shore, Cobra soldiers are arrested and a star lad's crew arrives to take the satellite. Since the monster survives the attack on the submarine, Gary and his uncle make a billboard to draw tourists. The Ravens and a number of Cobra soldiers, however, are sent back into the past again. The time is unspecified, but a group of natives row at them from out of the fog. And then we have a weird prologue, which comes at the end. should technically be an epilogue, but we'll assume that's a prologue for the next story. A woman named Sib working for Humanity International. Boy, did that kind of bring me back to Babs working at the, what was that, Human Research something something? Humanity Research Department, HRD. Anyway, Sib uh, enters her office to find a man in a coat, hat, and mask standing there. He asks her whether her organization frees prisoners, then tells her that he has a prisoner he wants freed, not through the group's usual tactics, but by having her relay information to someone who is to call her soon. Two things before I forget them, because sometimes when I go through the synopses, I happen upon things. But it's interesting that Gary keeps talking about these pretty ladies, and then Black Canary assumes that some things arrive with these people pretty girls. I just wonder what her connection was, because something hasn't necessarily happened. Does she assume the ladies, the pretty ladies, as he calls them, brought up the lake monster? The other thing is, where's the connection between Cobra and the lake monster? Are you just assuming because Cobra's there? Cobra is there because the lake monster is there. And then also with this lake monster, if this... Solaris 2 has been there for two decades. Shouldn't there have been way more lake monsters filtering in accidentally? So just some some questions about that. I do want to talk about the covers because these are always cool. And so with four... You have, because if you recall, Carol and Coco was talking about this, you see two frames of just Barbara's head. Oh, I guess. Oh, never mind. One, two, three, four. Four Barbara heads. But just on computer screens, you get a full body in five as well as some heads, lots of focus. Uh sorry, that was six. And six, you get a full body. And then five, which is, you know, Jurassic Beach is kind of clever here and you've got the footprint in the sand and everything. You just have Dinah Lane on an Oracle towel. So you actually still get oracle in there i think my favorite is absolutely number six just with the clock tower and you're assuming that those government people are going to pop in and get her but they don't you've got uh, her on her monitor as well as the guys on security camera and then of course her doll but also just with the ravens popping up i think that's also a very cool action cover and then jurassic beach i think is just clever there so yeah, the return of the Ravens. Uh, I liked that the issue opens with them both fighting and obviously having some team issues because you get to see how the machine works, the Ravens work. That Cheshire is obviously a team leader and probably the most capable, and then both Pistolaire and Vicious have some sass to them and their own quirks, and I think the team reflects the Birds of Prey in a way. The fact that Cobra hired them to kill him makes sense because he needed to test their mettle, and I'm pretty sure that there have been movies that have done that as well. But did Cheshire know the entire time, Why, if she did, why didn't she tell her cohorts? Would it have made a difference? Hmm. I like Dinah talking about Nightwing to Oracle, and Oracle getting her feathers ruffled is amazing. So you can tell, obviously, that she doesn't want Dinah asking Nightwing out. So just pushing towards some romance there. What are the chances that Dinah would go on a vacation to a place that the Ravens are in Minnesota and that a CCCP satellite is? But, hey, luckily for us, we get a cro- crossover with, you know, this year's Jurassic World. Part of me actually almost would have liked to see Gary be a member of Cobra sitting on this discovery, you know, because sometimes you've got you what you think to be normal people, but then you find something sinister about this and you're like, oh, no, actually, they're not they're part of this whole thing and they're protecting it It reminds me of an old Emma Peel and John Steed Avengers where they go to murder town right and you think everyone's nice and normal and they're only a couple people but they're actually all not normal a couple people will know what I'm talking about Chris Carnes will know what I'm talking about as well as Darren and Ruth Sutherland so murder uh murder town I think that's what the episode is called. But anyway, so I thought it'd be cool if he was like that. But then again, it is nice to have Gary and Uncle Olay or Ol have this, um, you know, this sort of small town feel and almost like a grunkle Stan and, and the Mystery Shack as well. Thinking about the hashtag Me Too movement, should Dinah be touching Gary's face and giving him a kiss, even if he does enjoy it? Hmm. I was thinking about those panels when I was reading this. I also wonder uh, about the facility of texting underwater. So Oracle can obviously, she still has audio, but Dinah can't talk now that she's underwater with her scuba gear, but she's texting during a mission. And even in the middle of a fight, when she says, blah, 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 it seems like a bad idea. The one thing that I didn't think was so well sussed out with this is the neutrino science. I felt like it was only partially thought out. Even Cheshire isn't allowed to really finish her lesson before she is silenced by her team. And if the satellite brought the neutrinos down to earth, why would it have a neutral area around it? It would seem like that would go to different places as well. So that's something that I don't necessarily understand unless it's like home base and it just stays there, and it's giving off everything. Ah, I'm trying to work through it. Cobra Prime wants to command from the past, so it seems like he knows what's special about it, but then he doesn't know what happened to the Ravens, which is really confusing, and then the Ravens are wanting to get him back for sending them on this mission as well, so it's sort of like what information do they know and what information don't they know. And then Cobra Prime, he bails so easily after Nessie, as I'll call her, attacks the sub. I mean, doesn't a Cobra sub have weapons? Seems a little weak. I like how Oracle narrates how dangerous the Ravens are while Dinah just takes them down and uh, just proves her mettle. So what will happen to the Ravens? What's going on in the prologue? I guess we'll see. But besides the main story, there were two side stories going on. As the military were closing it to stop Oracle, and at one point we thought they had Clever Dixon, I was hoping they would go to Blockbuster, and they did. And that will never get old, and I hope that it continues happening because it's hilarious. This is the second time she's done something to him. The other side story was finding out who Beeb is. And in fact, not surprisingly, it was Batman. I love that Oracle knew all along because she's not an idiot, people. And he was dressed down by her. I also like that Alfred was trying to get him to stop. I guess Batman's worried about the oversaturation of Oracle in DC Comics. I mean, she's in Nightwing. She's in Birds of Prey. She's in justice league of america actually he's concerned about how she's holding up but wouldn't there be a better more dire time to do that i mean cataclysm would have been one after the killing joke maybe But i guess she wasn't oracle right after that and does he have a right to watch over her like this does anyone those are questions that i'll it to you listeners what do you think about batman watching out for oracle Overall, I thought that these three issues were well-balanced. You know, focusing on the main story but having these fun interludes with the two side stories. And we also get to see another team working together and see comparisons with the birds of prey both working well as well as not working well. And it was uh, a fun story. I think the weakest part, of course, was the science. But with Cobra Prime and the Ravens, I thought that was uh, interesting stuff. So I'm going to give this 8.5 out of 10 Loch Ness Monster now for some listener emails.
0: Mail time.
1: Who's here?
3: Meltem. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me wanna wag my tail.
2: When it comes, I wanna wail.
1: I have two listener emails. One's an email, one's a comment on an episode. First from Donovan, he says, Dear Stella and Miss Coca, I was severely entertained by BTO number 158, particularly the attention to sleazy detail concerning Greg Land's artwork. When I first read that three-parter way back when, I really didn't think too much of it. And when hearing Miss Coca's comments, for the most part, I still didn't, until issue three. The action panel of Dinah twisting her spine really stands out. There was a particular panel no man's land of Sarah Essen and Shadow, where a spine is impossibly narrow. That I'm reminded of when looking at this book. Regarding the end of Birds of Prey and Backrow Rebirth runs, I found the discussions on the final arcs of the Bensons and Hope Larson very agreeable. I dipped in and out of Backrow on the Birds of Prey, but never thought it was bad or awful. The continuity was confusing, and I did think the final arc with Helena's mother was pretty limp. I also disliked the light-hearted inclusion of poison ivy in the book, but that's really a discussion for another time. What I did like was how the Bensons kept the birds friends and always had them on the same side. I recall in the New 52, everyone sniping at each other, often. With the Bensons, I got the sense that Badson and Helena truly liked each other and liked being heroes. I, too, am glad they didn't split up at the end. With Hope Larson's run quietly ending, Stella hit upon something I had considered when she suggested Larson was leaving out of a sense of shame. Not that she should feel shame for her work or that the book was ever as bad as the worst of DC, but between the comments she gave on the Burnside run at SDCC and how the plots came together during her two years, I never got the sense that she enjoyed writing backroll. While I think her second year was generally better than the first, I found a number of the stories boring, and that might have stemmed from Larson's own lack of engagement. The four-part Nightwing story, which I tried to defend last year, seemed like the last of Larson's creative energy. Not to play armchair writer or downgrade her skills as a professional author, but there was a sense of superficiality I got from the Penguin plots, and Babs' sense of misdirection could only come from the writer's own, because the character herself was pretty stable, I thought." I'm reminded of how Kelly Puckett was quoted saying when writing Cassandra Kane's series, he didn't know who she was as a character for the first year or so. I got a similar vibe with Hope. She seemed to search for a barber she could relate to, but fell further and further away from connecting to her as her contract ran itself out. And this isn't her fault, and it's good that she's getting out what she can, but I think her lack of engagement stems from a greater issue and one I keep going back to. How do you write a Babs Gordon backroll in this day and age? If she's been shot and paralyzed and bent Oracle, how do you write her as backroll after all that? DC doesn't seem to know and not know what they want as a result. Do they want the back row from Carmine Infantino days? Can't do it because that was in a very specific era for not just DC Comics and Batman Comics, but the country, considering the era of feminism in 1969. So they can't have that. They can't have Yvonne Craig. They can't have Tara Strong because Babs is forever separated from the Bat family, seemingly because she can barely tolerate any of them, save for the Dick Grayson. They tried... <laughs> for the dick reason. They tried to de age her, but there's not a queer through line between a young back and an older and experienced back and if there is from the pre crisis comics, they don't seem to recognize it. What they're trying to go for is an idea that's never been tangential or materialized a back that existed on her own in this modern era of sidekicks and history. We've not been given a flashback story of Barbara choosing to be back again. It's just been assumed because that's what DC wants her to be. Even if her quitting has been retconned, who is she in to? To her mask and her civilian identity, is Backrow just Barbara putting on a voice and being tougher on people she pretends are strangers to her, or is it her with the purple helmet on? Because DC doesn't know, the writers don't know, and the character doesn't know. <laughs> Until that happens, the books are going to continue to generally disappoint. The only ones who seemed to know were Fletcher, Stewart, and Tar, because they never stopped to question who Backrow was, and as a result, the character felt comfortable in her own skin, and we liked her for it. I gave Chris's Batman Adventures reviews another chance, but my sensitive heart can't take his critiques. I love issue number six as a great closed-door mystery, something I've never seen repeated in any other era of Batman, be it the Denny O'Neill 70s stuff or otherwise. I yelped, aw, come on, at a 6 out of 10. Sorry, man. I thoroughly enjoy Carol Coca on the show, and hope she'll return. She seems like a real kindred spirit to Stella's bruised, bad girl loving soul. Looking forward to No Man's Land and the countdown to Cassandra. Prope finem, Donovan Morgan Grant. Don, as always, very well written. Uh, I'm thankful for you writing in. I know Carol Coca is also appreciative of the kind words that you said, and that's true. You know, it is. You know, who is this? Barbara Gordon now and even in this next issue we'll see that she still doesn't know because she's reconsidering library sciences (sighs) part of me thinks it might be time to sort of put her on hold and bring in someone new to be back or someone new old if you get what I'm saying there because I think there was an opportunity especially during that Penguin arc for her to go back to politics I, I think there were hints there that apparently I was grasping at straws or as it may be the posters in the boxes but there was a real opportunity for her to to do something like that and I think mature to a certain extent and also maybe feel like she was accomplishing something and and getting to the character that she wants to be and if possible having that mentor role again because she is, I think she's sort of chafing. She's chafing on this fence between adulthood and young adulthood. And I think that might be one of the problems is the writers can't put a finger on whether she is a young adult or an adult. And sort of her life experiences. And I, I think that may have been the problem with the de-aging. Because if you de-age, you can certainly do certain things. But you've got to keep on that path. But then they're trying to do... Other stuff, or I—I I don't know. I, I guess all of her issues and her confusion at her character might be because she's younger. So I guess young people have, you know, <laughs> identity crises. I don't know. I—I I feel like I have identity crises all the time. But yeah, good questions and, and something to certainly consider. And now I, I think it'll be really interesting to see what this Margaret Scott, Barbara Gordon backroll is going to be like feel like it's gonna be a Gil Simone one, but we'll see. I mean if whew, I if she doesn't want to go Grim Dark, I wonder what Margaret Scott considers Gil Simone. If she doesn't consider Gil Simone Grim Dark, then we're gonna be in load of trouble. Here we go. Uh, next is from Ian Prime, A.K.A. Ian Miller from episode one hundred fifty eight. Truly awesome conversation with Professor Coca. As I did in response to your Excellent Thrawn podcast, I highly recommend Aaron Alston's X-Wing, Wraith Squadron, and Starfighters of Audumar books, much more than Michael Stackpole's Rogue Squadron books because of Alston's much stronger character development and moral themes. I'm so glad that you both found Ezra one of the weakest (laughs) elements of the Rebel show. He's been a big obstacle in getting through the show. Yeah, high five there, Ian. The discussion of Detective Comics number nine eighty and the amazing appearances of Cassandra's background and Stephanie as both Robin and Batgirl was wonderful as well. I also teared up every time I read that issue because of how well Tynion brought out both Cassandra and Stephanie's emotions and I think the finale in nine eighty one was really excellent. I'm curious to know if Stella enjoyed Batman the Black Mirror by Scott Snyder, the book that created James Junior. Well, sorta. Of. He was technically the kid in Batman Year One, but Snyder was the one who made him into a villain. I do agree that Simone's use of him was pretty poor and kind of unmemorable, but I think Snyder really got into the depths of both Dick and Baz's characters using James Jr. as their villain completely agree that an annual should be special to justify the greater cost and length. I personally think that DC should hire Brian Q. Miller to write the adventure hinted at in Backworld 24, where Seth, Babs, and Cass time travel back to World War II to hang out with the Blackhawks as an annual. I would buy so many copies, you and me both, Ian. Your choice to do Arcs of Birds of Prey is a really good one. No Man's Land is coming up, and there's a lot of issues to go before you get there, and I'm so excited that you're finally to my very favorite series starring Bar regarding babs is such a powerful likable but complicated and often flawed character who really draws you in and makes you root for her i didn't realize it but i did listen to professor coke on the talking comics podcast about wonder woman with Rucca and wood and robbins a few years ago and really loved it though perhaps not agreeing with everything smiley face demoticon but I 200% agree with the proposal of a Backrow Incorporated or League of Backrows title. I think with the ending of Birds of Prey and a new direction for Detective Comics, Steph, Babs, and Cass could really have a wonderful lit title together. And the book on Batgirls from Bette to Nyssa sounds quite exciting. I hope there's a chapter on Steph, including her time as Robin. I'm sad to see the Bensons go, even though I agree that they're probably my third favorite run. First is Simone's first run, second is Dixon's run, third the Bensons, fourth the Sean McKeever arc following Simone's departure, fifth Simone's second run, sixth Tony Bedard's run after McKeever left, seventh the arcs between Dixon and Simone, and eighth the New 52 run that last barely even qualifies as a Birds of Prey title. I am less sad that Larson is leaving, and I completely agree with Stella that her issue feels a lot like she's using Babs to make her own statements about leaving superhero books, which I think isn't a great way to end a book, but I wish her the best in her creator own books and hope that the next run is great. And, of course, we'll be following along with Stella as she reads it. Well, Ian, thank you for writing. And, of course, I would say... With Oh, you only asked one question, really, for me. I mean, I, I agree with all you have to say about these wonderful things here. Um, except my order, I think, might be a little different from you in the, uh, the Birds of Prey. But you asked about Black Mirror. I actually really, really, really enjoy Black Mirror. However, it is really disturbing. And one, there are two nightmare images that I have of Barbara Gordon. One of them is The Killing Joke, where she's, um, I think it's the photograph scene, and the other one is where she is in a wheelchair, and James, like, pulls back a blanket, and then you see that there are two knives in her legs there. Horrifying. So... You know, if that's the James Gordon we're going to see, then, you know, I guess that could be good to have sort of a mystery suspense, a macabre tale. But how he was used, and I think this is why Carolyn and I both don't like the fact of him coming on, is because of the Gil Simone run. Because I think it was just really poorly done. So we'll see what it I mean, yeah. I don't know, we just haven't gotten back to that sort of psychological villainy I think that they had with her. I mean he did he did pretty terrible stuff but it, it uh I don't know, it just felt different with uh with Gail. And so and the other reason why I'm concerned with it was because of the tone of the book. But since Margaret Scott said she wants to go a little bit darker, I guess we can expect some darker. Well, as always you can write in, you can ask questions you can answer questions, or you can make comments by writing to batgirl.oracle at gmail.com. And the question for you is, of course, what do you think about Batman having some surveillance on Barbara Gordon in Birds of Prey? Let me know. When I come back, I'm going to review backroll number 76, a.k.a. number 24. But first, Zias' Radio Hour, featuring No Redemption Song by Jason Collette. Staying stoned
3: on highway for a while In a bay of the southern Ontario bastard song I let my soul slip into the sun And watched it sing just over
1: I was thinking over the break that, you know, the Babs-Tar redesign did last 76 issues, so we can be very happy for that, and at least, you know, it didn't putter out over 20 or so, and who knows how long this gray costume will last, and it'll go back, but we'll see. You know, people get redesigned sometimes. It's just what the redesign symbolizes and what comes with it that really matters. Well, here we go. Just a one shot by Sean Aldridge. Backroll 76, a.k.a. 24, choices. Writer Sean Aldridge, art Scott Godlewski, colorist John Rausch. At a parking lot on the grounds at Burnside College, Batgirl catches the Speed Demons selling Easy A, a new and improved version of Adderall, not the Emma Stone film, which has already caused the death of two students. Batgirl takes down one seller and goes on a motorcycle chase, yay, against the other two, and they're actually called the Street Demons, yo. Taking them down using some Fast and Furious tech, which causes an EMP and shuts the engines down. Becquerel then gets a 911 text from Melissa, a former high school classmate, and she meets her at the Gotham Grind, where Melissa explains that another classmate, Jacob Cesaro, has been brought into the hospital three times this month looking like hell. She believes he's wrapped up in some bad business. Babs says she'll look into it, and then they reminisce. That night in Gotham's west side, Becquerel looks for Jacob while thinking about their similarities, both into computer programming, both had fathers who were cops, but one night Jacob's father was killed. She follows Jacob to Gotham's largest server farm, where she beats up some thugs and finds him programming within. She tries to get him to leave, but he tells her she should leave right before Two-Face shows up. Batgirl takes out Two-Face's thugs with a sleep gun, but waits to hear what his plan is, which is to have control over Gotham's infrastructure. She hears all this right before Jacob knocks her out and Two-Face with her. It seems that Jacob has been deep undercover in order to take Two-Face out, because he was the one who killed his father. As Batgirl easily gets out of her binds, Jacob says that Two-Face has a second part to his plan, bombs that will give Gotham a scar across her face, just like Two-Face. Jacob is okay with this, so that other people will learn that Batman won't always be there to save them, like he wasn't there for his father. Batgirl knocks Two-Face out with her sleep gun and seemingly talks Jacob down until he begins the sequence nonetheless. But there was a reason why Babs was number one in the computer coding class and Jacob was number two, as she goes through several layers of encryption to stop the bombing sequence and knocks Jacob out for good measure. Batgirl and Commissioner Gordon discuss Jacob outside before she disappears, like all other members of the Bat family. Next, sparks and punches fly. To get started with the art, I again want to really recommend that you look at Joshua Williamson's variant cover. Once again, gorgeous and beautiful. You've got a half bifurcated cover and, you know, on one side you've sort of got this skeleton and macabre. And then on the other side you have back roll and sort of hope, which I think is very interesting to go along with the two Faced theme as well as Choices. But within the actual issue, I really liked on page 12, the bottom panel with the back girl wiping her hands. And then the background, you see her faintly, uh, just the brief fights that she has with the thugs in the hallway. And it almost gives me a daredevil on Netflix feel of how he sort of goes through the hallway and takes everybody out. Well, the cover, I think, for this issue was a little misleading, the main cover, anyways, because Two Face was only a halfway villain, and really Jacob turned out to be the main antagonist. And I almost wish that Two Face were not on the cover because when he shows up on that one page, it's like it, it could be an awesome, shocking moment. And if you had, you know, if this were in Detective Comics way back when, that's when you end the issue, right? With this cliffhanger that Two Face pops up because Batgirl didn't know that he was behind it. I should put in quotes behind it. And so it'd be cool for the reader to not know as well. I like the themes running throughout this issue of many possibilities, I think, for one person to face. And also that sometimes people can't be saved, no matter how much you may try. And I think, you know, obviously that uh, people might disagree with that. You know, that's one of the themes running on, Fear the Walking Dead, that it's never too late for anyone, but I don't know. You know, I think in the past, Backgirl would struggle with this fact, but it seems like here she's in a good place. She tried multiple times to help Jacob, and in the end, he kept turning her down and was making poor decisions, and so she knocked him out for it. You know, it's not like she has some capital. Uh, Punishment for it, but still, you know, I I think a couple issues back she was trying to reform everyone, and I think that it works for some people, but not for everyone. And so, I think we're getting to that a little bit here. You know, the difference between Jacob and Babs, if we think about many possibilities and different roads taken and and the what ifs, is really Jim and, and that relationship, not just that she had a father. And Jacob didn't, but that she had someone who was a real moral pillar and example for her. And I think that's something that you see exemplified throughout the entire issue, as well as that conversation that they have in the end of it. I liked the tie to Babs past, but Aldridge didn't really help us any with giving a background to Melissa. We get background to Jacob through Melissa and Babs, but you just have to jump in without knowledge when Babs first meets Melissa at Gotham Grind because it was a random text that she got. There was no background to that, not even a a thought bubble that said, you know, oh, Melissa and I went to Gotham High together. So that, that was something that I thought could have been improved upon. I liked the initial short mission in the beginning because it involves her college and she gets to use different tech that we've not seen. And, and actually in this issue, we see two different pieces, uh, one of those discs that she throws the EMP discs and then, of course, the, the sleep gun. We weren't here that Babs is rethinking library sciences. So as I mentioned before, one wonders what she will do next. We're just not, there's really no consistency with this character. And I don't blame Aldridge. I think this is uh, being telegraphed to him by other people. But, you know, who is this Barbara Gordon? What is she planning on doing? When she went in for library sciences and went back to college, I thought, yes, this will be really great. But now uh, it didn't work out. So where do we go from here? The conversation at the end makes me again wonder if Jim knows her secret, mainly because Baccaro says her father taught her something. She thanks him for being alive, both of which are more than hints. And also when you say, my father taught me that, then someone who was her father would think, hmm, I taught my daughter that too. So who knows about that? I thought overall that this issue was really well-rounded, well-written, and in character, which obviously is very important. I just thought it was a, a breath of fresh air. Also, the art was really well done, following the path of others, as well as adding new flares. I wish I could see what Aldridge could do with the character, given more time. There are thoughtful character moments and thought bubbles that don't for once leave me scratching my head. So I'm sad, actually, that he only got this one issue, really. And then Margaret Scott is, I'm pretty sure, picking up coming up next. So hmm, sorry about that. I'm going to give this a 9.5 out of 10 bats. I was also told by many people that I should read the Green Arrow Annual Number no. 2 by Julie and Shawna Benson, which was a No Justice tie-in, and the DC solicit red or reads there is a brainiac spaceship raining chaos upon seattle it looks like a job for the justice league but they're nowhere to be seen even worse green arrow can't get in touch with red arrow arsenal or black canary and the queen incorporated cell phone satellite has been taken down thankfully Backrow contacts ollie through a birds of prey transmitter can green arrow figure out what's going on without being killed so backroll helps Green Arrow out more as Oracle than backroll, but he really doesn't know the difference. And so it was great to see uh, that partnership, Friends of the, the Pretty Bird, right, of, of Dinah. I thought that was pretty cool. So, yeah, thank you for recommending that to me, and a good pickup, even though the context, I wasn't really sure was going on since I have not been reading No Justice. But, yeah, it was worthwhile, absolutely, for the Babs appearance. Now over to Chris for his Batman Adventures review.
2: Ah, that's like getting a formal invitation to a wedding from your local comic shop and there actually being a ceremony. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Batfans. Welcome once again to the Batman Adventures review segment. Thank you very much for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. Today, I'm looking at Batman Adventures number 7. Batman Adventures number 7 was cover dated April 1993 and had a cover price of $1.25. Our story is entitled, Raging Lizard. Our writer is Killer Kelly Puckett. It was penciled by Macho Man Mike Parabek and Rowdy Rich Burchett was the inker. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. This story was reprinted in Batman, The Collected Adventures, Volume 1, which was released in 1993, and The Batman Adventures, Volume 1, which was released in 2015. This does appear to be available on Comixology. Raging Lizard, Act 1, Requiem for a Mutant The story begins with Batman barging into Thug Antoine's base of operations and Batman asking where he can find a mobster named Mandrake who left Chicago for Gotham City just before he could be put away for murder. Batman takes out Antoine's goons and closes in on Antoine, who panics and says he doesn't know where to find Mandrake, but someone named Tommy Two Bits does know. We then see Tommy Two Bits entering through a guarded door and going into an underground wrestling match, where Killer Croc is one of the fighters and makes quick work of his opponent before the match officially starts. Croc's trainer, Mickey, tells Croc that his next opponent will be some unknown called the Masked Marauder. Croc is eager to take him on, but once the fight starts, the oversized Masked Marauder quickly takes Killer Croc out in under a minute. Afterward, Killer Croc has his gear packed and leaves, dejected. Act 2. Eye of the Reptile Tommy 2-Bits visits Mandrake and warns him about Batman. Unfazed, Mandrake tells his two goons, Frankie and Johnny, to go with Two Bits and take care of Batman, Chicago-style. And I'm sure they aren't talking about hot dogs or pizza. Meanwhile, Croc's trainer Mickey talks Croc out of quitting wrestling. Batman tracks down Tommy Two Bits, beats up Frankie and Johnny, and asks Two Bits where he can find Mandrake. Back in the ring, Killer Croc is renewed and pummels his opponents. Act 3, Under the Waterfront While Killer Croc has a rematch with the mass marauder with Mandrake in attendance, Batman busts in. Batman eludes gunfire and starts to take out the other goons in attendance, but the marauder punches Batman. A stunned Killer Croc gets up and takes out the marauder, and he reclaims his title belt while Batman bags Mandrake. Batman tells Killer Croc he got what he came for and for Croc to keep his nose clean. Croc walks off with Mick and tells Batman... That's hard to do when you live in the sewer. The End It's worth noting that when this issue originally came out, it was polybagged, with a familiar shadowy Batman against a red moon and gray background, and it had Man Bat depicted on the lower portion, who doesn't even appear in this story at all, but does appear on a Topps trading card that was enclosed inside the bag. This was a promotion for a set of Topps, Batman the Animated Series trading cards that were out around this time. The cover itself was done by Mike Parabek, and it depicts Killer Croc putting Batman in a headlock against a stark orange background. This would be Parabek's first issue with pencils, and I thought he did a fair job. He'll be the regular pencil for the next several issues. Frankly, I think his artwork will get better as he continues on with this series. He does good action and fight sequences, and the facial expressions of Croc's victims, er, opponents, are funny. For the story itself, we had two things going on Batman's hunt for Mandrake and Croc's hunt for getting his quote, I have the tiger back. And they somewhat intersect in the end. The hoods weren't memorable and they were given cliched names. I don't know if any of the creative team were wrestling fans and if this was a nod to wrestling. And I confess I really don't recall how popular wrestling was back in 1993. I do like that this seems to be a smarter, more intelligent version of the Killer Croc character than the one I remembered from Batman the Animated Series. I didn't like, though, that we didn't know much about this masked marauder character, who seems formidable in his own right and can take out both Batman and Killer Croc. Well, that is until Killer Croc got his second wind. As far as I know, this was the masked marauder's only character appearance. Uh, This was a light issue, perhaps fun, depending on who it was aimed for. After the story was done, though, when the dust cleared, I just don't know how memorable this was. I didn't hate it, but I am giving Batman Adventures number 7 6 out of 10 bats. Before I get to Nightwatch, this is a good time to read an email I got on my last segment. I heard from Laurel, who is on Twitter at Mountainflower1, and you can hear her well-worded Birds of Prey issue recaps and thought-out opinions on the Feather and Foes podcast, which is a fine show hosted by Ashford. With respect to Batman Adventures number 6, remember, this was more of a mystery story. Laurel writes, I definitely liked the classic locked room mystery issue, better than the Scarecrow two-parter. I didn't realize this was the first issue without a supervillain. Thanks for pointing that out. Sometimes I think writers rely on them too much. You have a number of valid criticisms. I completely agree that the, quote, Rose clue equaling the Rosewood clock was not the best. Just have him point in the general direction, then later Dick finds a scuff or scratch on the clock that causes him to open it. I would also like a better answer than, quote, because he's Batman, to explain how Bruce managed to get out of the jail cell and back in again without any cops noticing. I thought there were some fun retro touches like the cops questioning Bruce with a spotlight shining on his face and the argument between Bruce's lawyer and Bullock that included mentions of Joseph Stalin and, quote, pinko lefty. It was nice to see Dick get to do some investigating. The bat countdown hand signal was clever and established how in tune Bruce and Dick are. The art was a bit dark, lots of faces and half shadows and dark coloring. You're right, Bruce's shirt and tie changed colors a couple of times, too. So I guess while this issue had its good points, a six is about right. Issue seven. I really didn't like this issue. To me, it's two storylines that barely come together. The issue never made me care about Killer Croc and Batman's hunt for the mob is hampered by bad art and poor writing. I had to read it multiple times to understand what was going on. Just a bad issue all around. I'd give it a four at most. Like I said, I like your segment and will continue looking for it each month. Best wishes, Laurel. Thanks for writing in, Laurel. You always make my day when I hear from you. (laughs) Great observations with respect to the dialogue in issue number six. Like you, I did like the locked room mystery more than the Scarecrow two-parter. Yes, I did want more than a, quote, because he's Batman explanation with respect to Bruce being able to leave and enter the cell with being undetected by the cops. I was a little more generous with my rating for number seven than you. Like you, I had to read it more than once, though. My problem was character identification on places... And like you, I found myself finding hard to care about the presented situation. Mm, perhaps I did like the art a little better. I am glad that you wrote in. You tend to catch some things that I do miss, and I like that you're following along with me with this series. I really appreciate your feedback, and I'd like to hear others' opinions of these stories. So if anyone else would like to write in, you can contact me by email at bruce.wayne at us. Again, bruce.wayne at us. Now, for everyone's favorite segment within a segment, Nightwatch, where I take a quick look at the events in Nightwing through a shipper lens. So, I'm going to look at Nightwing numbers 45 and 46, The Bleeding Edge, parts 2 and 3. So, real quick, broad brush jokes, spoilers, Bloodhaven has been infiltrated with tech that is infecting not just computers, but the citizens as well. There are Russian mob women, and the guy behind it is someone Dick has been giving self-defense lessons to. In issue number 45, Dick wakes up and he finds that he's in bed with Barbara. But we later learn that he is in a VR world, and she is not the real deal. Later, Batgirl does appear in the issue and helps Nightwing. But Dick does get infected at issue's end. In issue number 46, Batgirl saves Dick from a fall. Later at a safe house, Batgirl notices a facial distortion on Dick's face, noting that the corrupted tech has gotten in under his skin. Batgirl punch-tases Dick unconscious and dresses him in his Nightwing costume while he's out cold. Nightwing awakens and asks Batgirl, You dress me? To which Batgirl answers, Nothing I haven't seen before, Dick. And honestly, your other clothes smelled like gym butt. Batgirl also placed a visor on Nightwing that allows him to toggle between reality and virtual reality. And later they go to investigate and infiltrate Mirage technology. The end. Wow, a lot going on here. And things that give one pause. And I wonder if anything happened in off-panel land. I'll best leave it there but I will give number 45 a minor shipping alert and number 46 a major shipper. Repeat, yes, I said it, a major shipper alert. (laughs) And I'm left to wonder what Stella will make of this. This concludes this edition of Nightwatch. A little news and a comment before I go. For any Batgirl completists out there, please note that Batgirl appears in a few panels and a couple of pages in a soft cover trade paperback that came out a couple of months ago. It was called Reconstruction. Reminiscing and rebuilding Puerto Rico It's an anthology book that teams up a superheroine called La Kenya with some other DC characters, and the book was put together by Eduardo Mirando Rodriguez. Creators involved include Greg Cale Simone, Greg Pack, Reginald Hundlin, Dennis Cowan, Tony Daniel, Ken Lashley, and Bilson Kevich, among others. 100% of the proceeds from this anthology will go to the continued work to help over 3 million Americans living in Puerto Rico, providing solar-powered lamps, food, clothing, and so much more. I'm still reading my copy, and I haven't quite finished up. Also, longtime listeners of the Back to Oracle podcast knew that I got started with my segment reviewing the Batman 66 title and the subsequent crossovers. By the time this episode drops, the first issue of the Archie Meets Batman 66 miniseries will have been released. I'd like to share my thoughts on it. So, I don't know whether to put Batman Adventures or the Night Watch segment on hiatus. Do I cover just one title or two or all three? And if I covered all three, I would likely make my synopsis and reviews very, very short in the interest of time, as my segments have and getting a little longer of late. So, what say you, dear listener? Please share your thoughts with me. Email me at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. Thank you! I haven't quite decided how to play it, so I appreciate it. Listeners, please check out Stella on the Required Reading podcast. Want to give a shout-out to the Sutherlands? Check out Warlord Worlds, Trucker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensational Sleuths, Fantastic Fantasies, Convention Correspondence, and the Super Secret Spies podcast. Listeners, you can find and follow me on Twitter. I'm at BatBooks. You can also find me on the Batbooks for Beginners podcast with Jerry Green, and that's where we review trade paperbacks with Batman and related characters. Jerry and I also have a podcast called The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about independent comics every week. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and I hope you check it out and give it a try. Please leave any comments for this podcast or this segment on the Batman Universe website consider supporting the Batman universe on Patreon by following a link on the homepage website. If you wish to contact me directly, again, my email address is bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. Thank you very much for your support. What villain will find potential love in Batman Adventures? What villains could possibly infiltrate Riverdale and how will the Archie Gang be involved? What book or books will I review on the next podcast segment? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these groovy, gripping, growthful groans and grams will be greeted, grated, and grounded out gracefully next time. Same Stella feed, same
1: Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. Next up is my anime watch list, and this is where I recommend a movie and series, a TV series, and let you know a little bit about it, as well as whether it's new or seasoned anime viewer appropriate. So the film is Millennium Actress, which was out in 2002. It's about an hour and 27 minutes. At the turn of the millennium, Genet Studios' dilapidated buildings are set to be demolished. Ex-employee and filmmaker Genya Tachibana decides to honor this occasion with the commemorative documentary about the company's star actress, Chiyoko Fujiwara, the reclusive sweetheart of Shua-era cinema. Having finally obtained permission to interview the retired starlet, an enamored Genya drags along cynical cameraman Kyoji Ida to meet her, ready to put his lifelong idol back in the spotlight once more. Hidden in the secluded mountain retreat is a thousand years of history condensed into one lifetime, waiting to be narrated. Chiyoko's recollections take them on an illusionary journey through Japanese cinematic history that transcends the boundaries of reality. The saga of her acting career intertwines with her filmography. The actors in her life blend seamlessly with the characters on screen, and the present melts with the past. Though the actress may have retired at the height of her career 30 years ago, the curtain on her life stage has yet to fall. I'd say this is seasoned anime viewer approved. It's got sort of a a, blending of realities. You've got her talking about the past and then the past is happening and you've got the director as well or the interviewer, I guess, slash director and the cameraman washed up in these memories and being a part of the memories so living them as well as hearing about them it's it's a little crazy so i would say seasoned anime viewer approved and it's got both japanese with english subtitles and an english dub and then the tv show that i recently watched was noir came out in 2001 26 episodes Noir, a name that strikes fear in the hearts of those who know the history behind the moniker. Long ago, it was the codename of a very successful and feared assassin, and now it is being used by two women who want answers to questions they have about their lives. The main character in this series is a highly skilled assassin named Mireille Bouquet, who is based out of France. One day, she receives a mysterious email from a girl named Kirika. Following up on the message, Muriel goes to meet this girl and discovers that not only does the girl have no idea who she really is, but she also has no idea why she's so skilled at killing people and why she feels no remorse when she does. Realizing that their lives are linked somehow, Muriel and Kirika team up and begin traveling the world together as they seek out the answers to their shared histories while avoiding the grip of an organization known as Les Soldats. Will the two find the answers they are looking for and will that truth free them or ruin them? I would say this is season anime viewer approved. Uh, Japanese with English subtitles and English dub available. It was okay. I wanted to watch this because there's this genre, I guess, of girls with guns. And this has uh, two spiritual successors, they call them, that I'm interested in. I Once I started it, you know, I was somewhat engaged. It's not the best one that I saw. This is probably not a gleaming recommendation, but you might like it. But I just couldn't figure out sort of this relationship between the two women. Uh, well, the I guess the woman and the girl. Because she was very cold towards her. But then, you know, at the end, it's like, no, don't kill her. It's very odd. I mean, are you friends or... Are you just kind of letting her follow you around? So kind of trying to work through that. Not my favorite animation style as well, the sort of the small faces and the pointy chins. But I I do want to look at the other two successors and, and see if I like them a little bit better. So those are my two recommendations. And finally, my literature recommendations. I read a lot here or so it seems. Star Wars The Last Jedi Cobalt Squadron by Elizabeth Wayne. This focuses on Paige and Rose Tico and the Cobalt and Crimson Squadrons of Star Fortress bombers as they attempt to covertly provide aid to a planet blockaded by the First Order. Wayne ably examines the Tico's sister's backstory, placing their family relationship at the core of her narrative so that her discussion of fear and sacrifice feels more natural than it might otherwise. So you really get a sense of... Rose and Paige's relationship which of course when what happens at uh, the beginning of The Last Jedi makes it all the more tragic Excalibur Epic Collection Volume 1 The Sword is Drawn. A legendary new team is born. Meet the United Kingdom's champion Captain Britain and his paramour the metamorphic Megan. They'll band together with former X-Men Nightcrawler and Kitty Pride when Gatecrasher and her technet target Rachel Phoenix Summers Fighting to uphold Xavier's dream, UK style. The five heroes from Excalibur. From their lighthouse base, they'll tackle the ferocious War Wolves, the Unstoppable Juggernaut, and Mojo Mayhem. Things get wild with Arcade, the Crazy Gang, and the X-Babies. And really heat up as Excalibur is drawn across the Atlantic to an inferno raging in New York. And also, the... Epic Collection, Volume 2 of Excalibur, The Cross-Time Caper. Amazing adventures across the Marvel multiverse. England's premier super team takes their show on the road in an interdimensional odyssey. Kitty Pride, Nightcrawler, Rachel Summers, Captain Britain, and Megan face a truly epic journey through incredible alternate dimensions. Guest starring nearly every hero and villain you can think of or very unreasonable facsimiles thereof. But what do Crusader X, Centurion Britannus, Chevalier Britane, and Lady london all have in common why they're all captain britain of course traumatic transformations and titanic tristers await my goodness that cross time caper just went on for a very long time but both recommend those i'm a huge fan of kitty pride so that was why i was collecting those so looking for more of that and the big conqueror this summer Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes and translated by Edith Grossman. Why do we regard it as one of the funniest and most tragic books ever written? Don Quixote chronicles the adventures of the self-created, knight-errant Don Quixote of La Mancha and his faithful squire Sancho Panza. As they traveled through 16th century Spain, you haven't experienced Don Quixote in English until you've read this masterful translation. It was, it was amazing. I was worried because it was over 900 pages of that. Is this going to be a slog? But it was, oh, it was so engrossing. And it was, it's not like a a Dickens novel where you're bogged down sometimes by the language. But it was almost like if you've read uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, it reads, it reads like that. It was so good. And there were times that I I did almost laugh out loud. I had to keep inside because there were people around me. And two more. Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ing In Shaker Heights, a placid, progressive suburb of Cleveland, everything is planned. From the layout of the winding roads, to the colors of the houses, to the successful lives its residents will go on to lead. And no one embodies this spirit more than Eleanor Richardson, whose guiding principle is plain by the rules. Enter Mia Warren, an enigmatic artist and single mother, who arrives in this idyllic bubble with her teenage daughter Pearl and rents a house from the Richardsons. Soon Mia and Pearl become more than tenants. All four Richardsons children are drawn to the mother-daughter pair, but Mia carries with her a mysterious past and a disregard for the status quo that threatens to upend this carefully ordered community. When old family friends of the Richardsons attempt to adopt a Chinese American baby, a custody battle erupts that dramatically divides a town and puts Mia and Elena on opposing sides. Suspicious of Mia and her motives, Elena is determined to uncover the secrets in Mia's past, but her obsession will come at unexpected and devastating costs. Little Fires Everywhere explores the way to secrets, the nature of art and identity, and the ferocious pull of motherhood, and the danger of believing that following the rules can avert disaster. good. I think I heard of this because it's, I think it's on Reese Witherspoon's book list, which it's funny now, I guess she's um, like Oprah and has her own little book list there, but I think maybe there's a plan to do something with the series, and so I really liked Big Little Lies after I read that and watched that, and so I wanted to read this, and again, quick read, really entertaining and thoughtful And sort of leads, ends things, not with an ending almost. Um, And it it makes me want to see, you know, follow up and see where these people are. But uh, yeah, it's, it's not a happy ending. And finally, Lily and the Octopus by Stephen Rowley. Ted, a gay, single, struggling writer is stuck, unable to open himself up to intimacy except through the steadfast companionship of Lily, his elderly dachshund. When Lily's health is compromised, Ted vows to save her by any means necessary, by turns hilarious and poignant, an adventure with spins into magic realism and beautifully evoked truths of loss and longing. Lily and the Octopus reminds us how it feels to love fiercely, how difficult it can be to let go, and how the fight for those we love is the greatest fight of all. Ugh. I love wiener dogs, and so this was a great story. I think I do like The Art of Racing in the Rain a little bit better if you're looking for a dog-human story, but this was uh, really good, and it does bleed into some, some fantasy there as well. So there you go, some books to check out potentially before the summer is up. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to BatgirlTheOracle at gmail.com. You can find the show on Google Play and Stitcher, and like the show on Facebook, or follow it on Twitter at Batgirl Oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well, and support it by subscribing to Patreon. Thanks for listening, and until next time.